difference a week can make. Last week, we were remembering Pentecost, when God breathed his spirit into the nascent church with rushing wind and flame and enough noise to get thousands of people gathered to hear what was going on. A movement started that day with thousands translated from spiritual death to life. Well, the focus this past week has been on these words. I can't breathe, uttered 11 times by uh, Mr. George Floyd um, over about eight and a half minutes. And subsequently, he died. Um, Much has been said about the human tragedy around this. Um, I've really wrestled um, how this has bothered me so this past week, even beyond the human tragedy that accompanied this. So I decided to do a word study in scripture on breath and breathe. And I'm going to let the scripture really drive our exhortation this morning. We begin in Genesis. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. In Job, we read, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. The psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. In Ezekiel, we read, thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. If you participated in our virtual uh, worship experience this morning, uh, you heard uh, the rapper Lecrae um, uh, reading these words from Ezekiel in the midst of that, uh, in the midst of that song. From Luke, we read um, Jesus' words. It says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And then John, after his resurrection, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. So breath and breathe is directly connected to life and death in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. It's the power through which we live out our life and that empowers the church. It's what binds us together as God's creation and as God's children, bought with the blood of Christ. We read again in Genesis, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And in Acts, we reminded, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. For we are indeed his offspring. 
And in Revelation, we read, for you were slain, and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. It's only through the Holy Spirit that we can have unity in our diversity. The love of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit can overcome all divisions and conflict. We need to make sure that we, the church, are truly breathing ourselves. Uh, that's what those songs were about this morning. I want to read uh, particularly uh, some words from uh, uh, the song that was called Build Your Kingdom Here. Now, you may not all know this, but uh, that, that song was uh, brought to us today from a group called Wren Collective. Wren Collective uh, all grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland. If there was ever a place on earth that understood division and conflict and death that accompanied that division, it's the, uh, it's the Northern Ireland in interface with, uh, with, with Ireland. Uh, really tragic, but this group that grew out of that were able to pen these words. And they said, we seek your kingdom first. We hunger and we thirst. Refuse to waste our lives, for you're our joy and prize. To see the captive hearts released, the hurt, the sick, the poor at peace, we lay down our lives for heaven's cause. We're, we are your church. And we pray revive this earth. Build your kingdom here. Let the darkness fear. Show your mighty hand. Heal our streets and land. Set your church on fire. With Win this nation back. Change the atmosphere. Build your kingdom here, we pray. In Romans 12, verses 9 and 10, Paul sets a high bar for what are the marks of being a true Christian. And he says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I have to say, I, I read this verse many times before, but it really jumped out to me on this verse, this aspect of outdoing one another in showing each other honor. So I want to share some examples that exemplify this aspiration to outdo one another in showing honor. You probably recognize uh, the white gentleman in the center as Billy Graham. His picture clearly was taken during another time of great turmoil uh, in our country's history. Pay attention to his posture. He's leaning in. He's clearly listening. He's trying to understand um, his, uh, his black brothers here. And he wrote these words in a book that he entitled World of Flame. In Christ, the middle wall of partition has been broken down. There is no Jew, no Gentile, no black, white, yellow, or red. We could be one great brotherhood in Jesus Christ. However, until we come to recognize him as the Prince of Peace and receive his love in our hearts, the racial tensions will increase, racial demands will become more militant, and a great deal of blood will be shed. The race problem be could become another flame out of control. 
Look when he wrote these words in 1965. He also wrote, the closer the people of all races get to Christ and his cross, the closer they will get to one another. If you don't recognize these individuals, that's uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, on the left. Um, he just went to be with the Lord uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Um, if you have the opportunity, watch uh, his memorial f- um, that was held at the Passion City Church in Atlanta. Um, really a, an excellent uh, memorial for his contribution to spreading the gospel around the world. Interestingly, what closed his memorial service uh, was a rap song from uh, Christian hip-hop artist Lecrae, who's pictured here on the right. And even uh, Pastor uh, Giglio from, uh, from Passion City Church said, what in the world does a 74-year-old man have to do with a rapper? But he said, well, it's because Ravi Zacharias happened in this moment in history. This is who he was. These were the kinds of bonds that he forged around the world because of the gospel. And uh, he showed honor uh, to Lecrae um, during his time on earth here. And in response, uh, Lecrae wrote on his Instagram post this week, this morning, the world lost a husband, father, leader, and friend. You are seeing wonders we can only imagine. You are in the presence of glory we can't comprehend. Your legacy on earth continues. Uh, Here's Lecrae trying to outdo uh, the honor um, in showing honor to uh, Ravi. There's another picture of uh, Ravi with uh, Kirk uh, Franklin. Uh, You can find a number of uh, pictures uh, on the web of Ravi and Kirk oftentimes in embrace or in pictures uh, just like this, often praying together. Ravi had an unbelievable influence on Kirk Franklin's life when he was going through um, some of his own challenges. And in turn, uh, at his uh, day of memorial, uh, Kirk wrote these words, today one of my heroes left his earthly tent to be with the living word. We will miss this genius of a man. Well done, sir. Well, you may recognize this uh, um, painting depiction of Jesus in Samaria at the well with a Samaritan woman. Now, we really need to take a moment to try to understand the many divisions, barriers, even hatred that Jesus was overcoming in this interaction. Cultural barriers, religious barriers, ethnic barriers, gender barriers, The Jews spitefully regarded Samaritans as hated half-breeds. They were hostile toward each other's cultural and religious practices, including their sites of worship. But Jesus did not follow the prejudices of his day. Rather, he lifted up and honored those that were marginalized by society. He loved them. He endured the cross for them. He ransomed them. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God, reigning over all. If we need to know what our response should be to those who are marginalized and mistreated in the world around us, we need to look to Christ and we should see them through his eyes. We need to abhor evil. We need to hold fast to what is good. We need to love them with brotherly affection. We need to outdo one another in showing honor. I think the challenge for all of us today is, what does that look like for our reach here in Ypsilanti Township. 
How can we better manifest his love in our community? How can we show that his Holy Spirit indwells us and that we can breathe? 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. What a timely study that we're going to be entering in today as we dive into 1 Corinthians. A church that struggled with its divisions. A book that teaches us so much about the love of Christ and the power of the gospel. This book that was God-breathed for us to teach us, to reprove us, to correct us, and to train us up in righteousness. And I look forward to the teaching from God's word this morning. And I'm hoping that uh, I can feel the breath of the Holy Spirit welling up inside me. And I hope to learn something today. I hope that I will be reproved in my own spirit. I hope that I will be corrected if I need to. And I hope that I can be trained better in the righteousness that I need to show um, to my brothers and sisters in Christ in our communities around us. This has been one of those weeks, as Dr. Pipe has just alluded to. It's one of those weeks when my words haven't come out the way I would like them to. And there have been times when I've wanted to be silent and think and learn and listen. And there have been times that when I have tried to speak, I feel like my words weren't adequate or they fell short. And so I prayed and I took long walks and I asked God to show me how I could respond in this extremely difficult season in our nation. A couple of things that I'll be sharing during the message will show how he prompted me and how I responded. And I want all of us to be continually praying about these things that Dr. Pipe just exhorted us with in scripture, because we can be a change agent, but we can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And so as feeble as my attempt has been, uh, I'm really relying on the Spirit's leading in my life to try to represent Christ and his love as I abhor evil and demonstrate Christ-like love to everybody who's made in God's image. We're starting a new study today through the book of 1 Corinthians. And as I started diving into it, I, I was struck again at how incredibly relevant and timely what I was discovering is in our culture right now today. I think you're gonna see some of that as well. We're gonna take this journey through 1 Corinthians Today is the introduction to 1 Corinthians, and I promise you we're going to get through the book, but today is an awful lot of background. So if you've got your Bible open, uh, we're not going to get terribly far through that first chapter today, but we're going to start. And I think that the background is going to help us gain some important context as we begin this book today. So I saw something on YouTube this week that caused me to ask this question as I begin. What if you could read a script that God had already written for your life six months prior to the time that you're gonna be experiencing something. What if you could do that? I watched a bunch of actors. I didn't actually see the series, but it was a big series, made for TV series, huge actors, big budget production. And I saw them around a table reading the, the final script of the final episode. They were reading and one of the guys, one of the main actors, in this series didn't read ahead of time. So he didn't know what his character was gonna be doing. They were saving a lot of this, I think, to try to keep uh, information from getting out into the world about how this thing was gonna end. 
because a lot of people didn't know. And he was sitting around the table. They started reading. They got to the very final scene, the denouement. He recognized that he was supposed to kill somebody that he'd been dealing with through this whole season. It was incredible. And he, he starts to see that and recognizes that he's going to have to pull out a knife and kill this person. And he just buried his head in his hands. And you could tell he was welling up and fighting so much emotion because he was going to have to act this scene out with a person that he had come to work with and respect. But of course, they were actors. But here's the thing. How would we react if we knew that the script had already been written, even just back it up nine months ago? If we read what we would have all been living through in this past three or four months, would we have even believed it? Would we think our hair is going to grow so stinking long because barbershops won't even be open for months? And there's this virus that's going to cause people to put fences around playgrounds and tell the kids that it's off limits because they can catch something deadly by playing on a playground. Who, who would have believed it? I probably wouldn't have. I would have probably thought, oh, you've been reading too much science fiction or uh, you're exaggerating. This can't possibly be the case. And yet here we are. And if we had read ahead to what our nation would have just lived through, I doubt that any of us would have been really prepared for how we could possibly respond. You can't prepare for that. So all I can think is that God, through his Holy Spirit, prepares us individually in our character so that when things like this happen, we're already prepared in a sense. For example, I read this from Christianity Today from somebody. He said, we've been living through what many have appropriately called unprecedented times. A whole lot of very dry kindling has been piling up in a tinderbox of clashing cultures, growing unrest with already strained relationships between police forces and black communities, economic disparity with gaps between rich and poor that are widening rather than shrinking, and the novel virus which comes along and causes pandemic pandemonium, including lockdown measures, and all that pours on a whole lot more volatile fuel. So it's no surprise that the heart-sickening, stomach-churning murder of George Floyd lit the match. And boy, did it. So because it's our nature to react emotionally and with knee-jerk reactions, what I think we have witnessed a lot is similar to what happens when ping pong balls are set up on mouse traps in a huge room. Maybe you've seen some of those YouTube videos and one person throws the first ping pong ball into all the rest of those things and you know it just sets everything off. We're bouncing off of each other with these ideas and with thoughts and with words and with actions that may or may not be helpful, but it feels like we should do something. And I wondered, how would Saul react if he read the script knowing that he was going to encounter Christ in a miraculous way on a simple trip on a road to Damascus and that his life would be changed forever and that he would somehow be transformed into becoming one of the greatest spokespersons of all times for this movement called the Christian church and for Jesus Christ who is the promised Messiah. I wonder if he could have even fathomed that 
God sneaks up on us in strange ways, and he can use events in our lives in ways that we never could have predicted. What I've been praying this week, as Dr. Pike just mentioned, is that starting with me, that I'll be a, a firm believer, but a strong listener, and that I'll be tenderhearted and pliable and open to the teachings of the Holy Spirit, because I've got a lot to learn, and I need to listen more especially before I react with a knee-jerk reaction. And I want to show love while at the same time abhorring evil. And I think that Saul, who became Paul, became that kind of person, and he's going to be teaching us through his book in 1 Corinthians about all that. Some of my personal lessons started a long time ago, and one of the things I learned about de-escalation happened when I learned to be a good listener before just having a knee-jerk reaction. I shared this story with you maybe two years ago or so. We were in Arizona, we lived in a little house, and our kitchen door opened up onto a slight back patio, a little bitty back patio. And then we had a big china berry tree with shade over our tiny carport. And the carport just had some aluminum roofing on top of that. And I heard the aluminum roofing buckle and make a crackling noise. And then I heard somebody hit the ground. They had just jumped off of our carport onto our driveway. And it was only about 20 feet from where I was standing in the kitchen. So I just opened up the back door and walked out. And there was this man looking startled that somebody had just walked out the door and was facing him five feet away. And rather than becoming upset or saying, hey, what are you doing? I'm going to call the police. I just said, hello there. Uh, may I help you? And I tried to keep my tone calm. And he didn't have any weapons and he didn't look menacing, he looked scared. And I thought, this guy needs to tell me what's going on, but I, I wanna de-escalate. And I think it was the Holy Spirit at work that caused me not to go, ah! <laughs> and so I just talked with him. And because he needed a place to hang out for a minute and it was cooler under the, uh, the shade of our back porch, he just walked back there. And I said, have a seat. So we sat down on some lawn chairs and he poured out a story. And what I learned was that he had had a fight with his brother a few blocks away, and he was running because his brother had called the cops on him. Now, I didn't know what had happened in that fight. I didn't know if I should have reason to be worried. <laughs> All I knew was here was this man who was scared, and he was willing to sit down and talk with me face to face. And he poured his heart out when he found out that I was no threat to him. And then I noticed that there was a police car that drove slowly down the street, but I could see it out of the corner of my eye because I could see all the way through our house, through the back door of our kitchen. And I realized that one of the reasons he wanted to hang out with me back there is because the police couldn't see him. <laughs> but in a few minutes, he finally took off again. And I said, well, do you have a safe place to go? Because you can't go back home, right? And he goes, no, I, I can't. Not right now. I want to wait until things calm down. He said, but yeah, I'm on my way to a friend's house. And I kind of took a shortcut. And I said, well, can I, can I pray for you before you go? And he surprised me. He, he just softened really quickly. And he said, yeah. He seemed surprised that somebody would want to pray for him. And so I just used that opportunity to pray for this guy that I'd never met, who showed up literally dropping out of the sky a few feet away from where I'd been standing in my kitchen. And he seemed really grateful for that prayer. And as he walked away, I felt that somehow something kind of tangibly spiritual and Holy Spirit led had taken place. And as I look at the person of Paul, who used to be Saul, I see an awful lot of those kinds of situations 
coming about in his life and through his ministry. I haven't had nearly as many of those situations in my life as Paul has. I pray there'll be more. And I pray that as I'm reacting, that I'll learn to shut my mouth and listen and pray silently, learning first before I just launch into something that could just be like ping pong balls in a room with other ping pong balls and mousetraps. I've seen some actions that showed me how people can demonstrate truth and love while at the same time standing for social justice and abhorring the bad things that can happen in the world. I've seen policemen showing love. It happened right here in one of our nearby cities. We saw policemen walking with protesters in Flint, Michigan, showing that they too abhor evil and that they don't stand for the abuse of authority. I saw prayer vigils. My son wonderfully sent us a quickly taken photograph of a bunch of Salvation Army people and friends gathered near a huge major thoroughfare in downtown Chicago, praying for our nation and for their city and for subcultures that could clash among us. And then I think about Christ on a cross, showing love while at the same time, at that very moment, condemning the abuse of power, abhorring sin, and demonstrating love at the same time. He captures it. He's at the center of what we should be doing in the midst of this kind of upheaval. Well, here's the thing about the background for Saul who became Paul, and then the letter that he's writing to us now that we get to read 2,000 years later, the letter to the people in Corinth. Injustice was common. Paul was a victim many times. You can read all the list of the ways he was abused. He was arrested, sometimes unjustly, most of the time unjustly. Sometimes he, were, he was arrested just because they didn't exercise or allow the exercise of free speech where he was. He was speaking out about this person of Jesus Christ, and so they arrested him because they considered that a threat. Isn't it interesting that now Christians aren't really free to speak as often as we would like because people would call what we're saying hate speech? Kind of a different perspective. And yet I want to listen long enough to find out why somebody would think that and try to get at the root of that and to say, has something happened to you in your past that would cause you to think that? And is there anything I can do to help change your perspective about that? Injustice was common. Paul was a victim many times. And yet he was also the guy who wrote this. Be joyful. <laughs> Grow to maturity. Encourage each other. Live in harmony and peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with you. Instead of writing scathing letters, castigating other people because of their unjust treatment of him, he says, be joyful, grow in maturity, encourage me. That's incredible. How could he do that? We're going to look at the man behind the letter and see what kind of character God had put in this guy's life so that he could write something like that. First of all, we know that he founded the church in Corinth. So he's writing to a group of people that he'd spent a lot of time with, and he had a great deep love for these people. He knew their lengthy history of cultural conflict that comes from many different angles. He knew about two Roman leaders, one about 100 years earlier who had destroyed the city or ordered it to be destroyed, and then another that had it rebuilt. The first one, I can't even pronounce his name, the second you might recognize, it was Caesar Augustus. 
And so now we've got this Roman government, we've got the Roman culture, we've got the Greek world, we've got neighboring nations that all have their influences coming into bear in this place. And they were at a location that was perfect for a cosmopolitan setting or a multicultural population. You see the map here, you can see Corinth. There was a land bridge or an isthmus. And that was a way that people could travel from one place to another across the land. But there were also ships that would come in on the blue areas there, the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf, which means that this was truly a crossroads for both land and sea. And so merchants would come from all different nations through here. And so, of course, they would bring their philosophies and talk about the current trends and things that were really popular back then. So this was the milieu, the melting pot of ideas that Paul was writing to in the church at Corinth. He was the man for the job. He could discuss Greek, philosophy, Jewish law, social issues, politics, economy, with people from all walks of life. He reminds me of Ravi Zacharias. As I think about all the incredible ways that Ravi could speak to all these kinds of issues in our current culture, Paul was like, like that. And he was used by God to affect this powder keg area because he was used to living in it. This was commonplace for him. He was used to living in this multicultural, social, political, ideological conflict area. Applying Paul's methods today, I, I think that Vodi Bakum said a few things that I really resonated with. Somebody posted it, and I appreciate that. I know that uh, a couple of families in our church have seen quite a few things and read some things from Vodi. I looked him up and found more about him today uh, because I really didn't know a lot about his background. But uh, Vodi was a preacher in Texas. He's a great big black man, and he looks intimidatingly fierce, but he's a teddy bear. And yet he's also a martial arts expert and has won awards and won tournaments because of his martial arts expertise. Uh, he moved about five years ago from Texas, where he was a pastor, to become uh, involved in the African Christian University in Lusaka, Zambia. And so he's a dean there and has influence on so many levels with so many people, dizzying intellect, kind of like Robbie Zacharias. He's very clear in his presentation of the gospel. He was making an observation in a short video that I watched this week, which I'm going to share for you because I think it's timely because of the cultural events in our own nation right now. He was saying, we are only one race. All of us came down from Adam and Eve, and so it's Adam's race. And he said, and biologically speaking, we're all just different shades of the same biological skin. It just so happens that some have been gifted with a little more melanin than others. And then this is this dark, huge black man speaking, remember. And he says to the people that he's talking with, he says, and, and hear me clearly, he says, I don't want you for a minute to think that God loves you any less because he didn't give you as much melanin as he gave me. And I love that. And Vodi is saying something that we as Christians need to understand and to live out that we're all the race of Adam, we're the human race. And I know that many of you have expressed to me, and those of you who haven't have probably wrestled with this as well, we have this strong spirit-led desire to do something in the wake of social unrest and a horrible televised murder. I mean, we just felt like we, we gotta do something. We can't sit still, we can't do nothing, and yet, I think God was trying to show me that sometimes 
when I don't know what to do, doing nothing is the right thing for a while. And I don't want it to be misread as apathy. It's not that I don't care. It's that I need time to be quiet and let God show me what is it that I can do that will be the most effective. Uh, this is thrown in for free. I was reminded just now of a good friend of mine who was a pastor. I grew up with him in Phoenix, Arizona. Ed Rowell had said that he was a bus driver for a while when he was part-time minister, when he was first getting started in the ministry. And there was a young child who had tragically died. And he wanted to show support to this family because he had used to drive the bus that this kid used to ride. And he went to the funeral home thinking he was going to be this rock solid minister to show uh, an example of God's love to this family. And he says he got into the funeral home and he looked up at that tiny casket. And he just he lost it. He couldn't do anything. All he could do was just cry. And he said the mother of this child was coming over trying to comfort him because she saw how distraught he was. And they just held each other and just cried. It just wept together. And he said, I couldn't get any words out. I didn't say a single word that whole time. I just cried with her. And then I said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And left. And he says, I thought I was a failure as a pastor. And that mom who had lost her child wrote Ed a letter later. And she said, Mr. Rowell, you said more with your tears than anybody could have said this whole week after the loss of my son. And I think it showed me that Ed was speaking the language that many of us have sensed and that we've been trying to share and we don't know what to say. And so I just want us that when we feel that ache to just go with it and to know that God uses the language that we can't even express and I'm praying that other people will catch that and that they will hear our heart ache for them and that they will see that we love people and we abhor sin both at the same time. Well, on my early morning walk today, I've started to walk early each day and I'm grateful for it. It's been sanity restoring because God has spoken to me in every one of my walks. And I was praying and said, God, help me with every interaction that you lead me to, to be able to show your love to people and to be tangible about it in a way that even though it may be only a brief interaction that they can tell I care about them. And it was just a few minutes after I prayed that prayer that I started to overtake a fella. I walked out into the street so he could have the sidewalk. And I said, I'm coming up on your left. I just wanted you to know that somebody's coming up on you because he was an elderly gentleman and he had a walking stick he was walking a lot slower than I was, and he turned around slightly, and I could tell he had a stiff back, and he says, oh, thank you, thank you, and I said, it's a beautiful day, isn't it? He says, oh, yeah, 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 it is, and uh, he said a couple of other words, and I could tell that he was willing to chat for a bit, so I slowed my pace, and I stayed in the street, and I started walking with him for about a block, and I found out that in that block, my new friend's name is Archie, that Archie is 91 years old, that he walks every day, that he was born in 1929, and that he spent a full career driving 18 wheelers for a living, and then took a pension at, are you ready for this, 1985. So he's been retired for 35 years. He spent most of those 35 years in Florida, but he hurt his back when he was washing his RV and fell off of it, 
So now he's moved back up to Michigan to be closer to family. And this was his original home. And the thing is, Archie was gifted with a lot more melanin than I've got. But I hear me clearly now. God doesn't love me any less just because he didn't give me as much melanin as he gave my friend Archie. And the human interaction and the little human connection that was made in one block of walking with a new friend showed me that God has little opportunities in store for every single one of us as his children. And I was praying silently as I was speaking with Archie and trying to listen more than I was talking to think, oh God, help me to be a witness in even my silence and even in my listening, help me to be a witness for you so I can demonstrate love. And I didn't have to say, I abhor evil. I think he knew that. I think he knew that I was willing to reach out to him human to human because we're all one race. So next Sunday, by the way, thinking about what can we do? I've had several people suggest, what can we do and can we pray? Absolutely, we can do that. I don't want to take up the time away from our Wednesday virtual prayer room because people have really been enjoying that. So next Sunday, a week from today, at 8 p.m., when it starts to feel a little bit cooler, but we still have some sunlight, everybody who wants to can gather on the property. Plenty of room for social distancing out there. And if the weather's good, we're going to gather out there. We're going to let the Holy Spirit lead. We're going to gather. We're going to pray. And we're going to seek the Spirit's guidance as we seek to be change agents agents of love and reconciliation and peace in our nation and in our neighborhoods. So that's next Sunday at 8 p.m. Everybody's welcome if you want to come. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians, because as I told you, we're not going to get very far in it, but I want to read just the first nine verses for you, and then we'll have time for me to just get you a little tiny background about Paul, and we're going to pick up and really start in earnest getting through his letter to the believers in Corinth next Sunday. Here it is starting with verse 1, 1 Corinthians. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Isn't that a beautiful intro? Now, let's look at the man Paul said he was called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It was a different calling than the rest of the 12 apostles that we normally think of. It was outside the norm, and yet it's very clear that everybody, all the early church leaders, affirmed his calling as an apostle. And that's good for us to recognize. Paul didn't self-appoint. <laughs> he didn't say, oh, I had a vision. 
I woke up this morning and realized I'm being called as an apostle. Clearly, there was an anointing upon his life. The apostles, that word just simply means commissioned or sent forth, and boy, was he ever. He could speak to different cultures, different languages. A lot of times, we'll think of the term apostleship as being similar to the term missionary, sent out, commissioned, the ability to relate to other cultures and even other languages at times. And so many of the people that we support as missionaries probably have the gift of apostleship. Paul definitely fit that description. He wasn't with Jesus personally like the other 12 were. He was Saul before he was Paul, as I mentioned, which means that he was that same guy that was actually persecuting the church prior to his conversion. He was taught by Jesus through special revelation. And I wonder if some of the other people who knew him as Saul could have read the script. And if at that table reading, they were reading, he had to say, wait, what? It says that he's going to get converted and he's going to become one of us. And he's going to lead us on mission trips to tell people about Jesus. No, they would have thought that's contrived. This has got to be fiction. It wasn't fiction. This is what God does with folks. He calls people, sometimes the people we would least expect. <laughs> and he'll always give those people exactly what they need to fulfill his kingdom purposes. And he certainly did that with Saul, who became Paul. Well, when Barnabas came along, he had that character already built into him. He was the encourager. He was the one that was able to grab a hold of Paul, even went to Tarsus, sought him out and said, I recognize something in you, Paul, I'm paraphrasing here, but I can see that you're going to be wonderful and used by God. So come with me. I'll introduce you to the others. I'll vouch for you. Barnabas was that guy. So P&B was Paul and Barnabas. That was before John Mark came to be. That was before PB and J. Right now, it's just P&B. And Barnabas introduced Paul and vouched for him and stood up for him and said, no, guys, there's evidence that the Holy Spirit has been doing something transformative here and you need to give this guy a chance because they were probably shaking in their boots wondering if it was a setup if it was an, an ambush and if all of a sudden they're going to have all these people come in and arrest them because Paul had the authority to do that sort of thing with the people who were followers of the way the Jesus movement well some didn't see the call coming some didn't see it and it took a while before they saw evidence that caused them to say okay I get it yeah he's real and we are going to follow his leadership because he even shifted a little bit in that leadership. John Mark had a little bit of a falling out at one point. We're going to talk about that very briefly in just a moment. But Barnabas was John Mark's cousin. And I have a feeling that maybe there was some tension there because Paul quickly sort of took over the leadership mantle from Barnabas, even though Barnabas was the first one to go get him and introduce him to the others. Clearly, Paul had everything that God had gifted him with, spiritual gifts, and the calling and everything else so that he could take over that mantle of leadership. And Barnabas was okay with that. Barnabas, seeing that he had a different gift mix, a different set of spiritual gifts, was quickly able to shift over and allow Paul to be the chief spokesperson because Paul had that gifting. It shows a lot of humility on Barnabas's part as well. But this unique calling is fleshed out in the early church in such a way that we can clearly see that people affirmed Paul in that role rather than fighting him for it. Paul knew about different gifts. He said so right there in that introduction. You all know about your spiritual gifts, and he even wrote something later in chapter 12, which has been really good for us, and then we can read another gift list in Romans chapter 12. 
That's where we learn an awful lot about spiritual gifts because of the Apostle Paul. Well, PB and J, when John Mark joined them, in fact, it was John and Mark because there was both the Roman name and his Jewish name. So if you wanted to put John and Mark, then it would be PB and Jam instead of PB and J. So I'm sorry, I couldn't resist it because it was just right there as I was doing the, the acrostic stuff. But PB and J, first missionary journey, they were called together and commissioned by a bunch of people that laid their hands on them, sent them out. They were commissioned and sent forth as apostles. So we have these three, but Mark left them. Some people have said, some commentators said, maybe he was young and he was afraid of bandits on the road. Maybe he was afraid of the long hike over the mountain because they had to go over the Taurus Mountains. I don't think so. If you look in context, I think it's pretty clear there's a big hint there that what he was really afraid of was that they were getting ready to go talk to a bunch of Gentiles. And he wasn't ready for that yet. John Mark didn't go back to Antioch where they had been before to report the news of their mission journey. Instead, he went to Jerusalem. Well, who was at Jerusalem? The Jewish believers. So I think the reason John Mark left was because he went back to the Jewish believers because he wasn't ready for this big paradigm shift as the apostle to the Gentiles, which became Paul's nickname, was ready to take them into brand new territory. Folks, listen to this. God may be calling us into new territory, mixing with people we've not yet mixed with. Maybe it's people right in our own neighborhood. Maybe it's people with more melanin than we've got. Maybe it's with our Muslim friends and neighbors. Maybe it's with people who've moved here from other countries and they have a different background. But John Mark, even though he shied away at first, finally came around because we understand later that Paul commended John Mark for what he did. And he, he even wrote a letter and said, oh, send John Mark to be with me because he's really useful. He's helpful for me in my ministry. So obviously there was a character arc in John Mark. Man, I pray that there's going to be a character arc in all of us. And that we're not going to shy away from meeting people who are different than we are. And that we'll be ready to jump in there and love them with the Holy Spirit's promptings in such a way that they'll know we genuinely care about them and that we abhor evil. We stand for social justice and we love everybody because we're all of one race, Adam's race, and we stand for Jesus Christ. That's what I'm praying will happen, just like what happened with John Mark. Different, but united. PB and J were each unique in their giftings. You got the youngster, John Mark, who wound up, he was also called Marcus, by the way. Mark, whom some called Marcus, was with these two older guys. And of course, there was Barnabas, the encourager. There was Paul, who was a little bit more choleric and fiery in his temperament, but he had all these gifts and, they knew, and he knew philosophy and he was such an intellectual. And yet they were used so well together. I think it's great that God can call people who are so different in their temperament types and in their spiritual giftings and even in their intellectual abilities or interests and yet bring them together as such a team. Francis Chan and Robbie Zacharias were a team like that. And I saw a sweet video online this week where Francis Chan was on the same platform. They were doing a Q&A and Francis was talking about Robbie and what a, a wonderful impact Robbie had made on his life, just like Dr. Pipe had said that Robbie has had such an impact on so many other young leaders' lives. And Francis said, the first time I was ever on a platform, sharing a platform with Robbie, I was so intimidated because this guy's intellect was dizzying. And he said, and quite frankly, some of the apologetics and the philosophy, it's kind of goes, whew, 
kind of goes over my head and I get lost. All I know is I really love Christ and I'm passionate about him and I want to share him with other people so badly. And he says, that's kind of my approach is I just want to love people to Christ. And I feel like that I didn't know who I was to even be thinking about sharing the platform with Robbie. And he says, but then Robbie walks over to me and he grabs me up and just hugs me tight in a brotherly hug. And he said, Francis, I'm praying for you as you speak because I want you to know I love you, my dear brother. And God is going to use you so greatly through what you're going to speak just now. (laughs) And Robbie could be seen just wiping tears. Because what Francis was saying about Robbie, Robbie was saying the same thing about the other guy. They built each other up. They were a team. And I can sense in Paul and Barnabas and John Mark that they were like that. They were connected in ways that they were so different and yet so effective because God was using those spiritual gifts. And what I see is God uses what we give him to use. There have been so many times when I felt so inadequate. That God, I, man, I don't know. I, I got nothing. You got to give me something. And he says, just give me what you got. Just give me what you got. I'll use it. And we certainly see that in 1 Corinthians and in Paul and Barnabas and John Mark and in Francis Chan and in Ravi Zacharias, who was leaving such a legacy for us. Another thing we learned about Paul, he wasn't afraid to ask for money, but he never asked for money for himself. He was urging the Gentile Christians in Corinth to give to the mostly Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. And he was even using the Macedonian church who had helped support him while he was there as an example and said, you need to be a little bit like the Macedonians. Even though they don't have a lot, they gave out of what they did have to help others. And they did so sacrificially. And I want you to do the same. But he was never padding his own pocket. He didn't have an air-conditioned doghouse in his backyard. He didn't ask for money for another jet plane for his ministries. That wasn't his style. In fact, he worked part-time as a tent maker just so he wouldn't be a burden on the people. And he said later on, he says, I was never a burden to you when I was with you in Corinth. And even when things got tight and I didn't have enough money, I didn't rely on you. People from Macedonia sent brothers and they brought me gifts to help support me so that I wouldn't be a burden to you while I was getting that church started. That's the kind of heart that Paul had. And that's the kind of heart that he passes on to all these people he was training and appointing and discipling. He wanted to lead by example to say, I'm fully in this with you and I don't want to be a burden to you, but you just keep giving out of the abundance that God has given you. And if you think it's a little bit, that's okay. God will use even the little bit. That's been sort of the sense that I've been getting as I've been leading us toward rolling out this vision that I've been given. Uh, One of the first times in my 35, 40 years of ministry when I feel like God has definitely given me a really specific vision and it's been affirmed in a number of ways. So I'm going to get ready to talk about that probably by next week. And we're going to start rolling it out because every one of you can do something with this vision to help us take steps toward getting into a building. Paul deflected praise upward, even when he had plenty of opportunity to accept the praise for himself. 
Um, Mark Elwell's been teaching to us from judges, and we can see how often it was when leaders would start to have a success and it would go to their head, like Gideon. There were others that would say, sorry, even though he said, we don't want a king, we don't need to have a king, only God is our king, but he started acting like a king, even though he didn't have the title, because he let things go to his head. Pride became involved, and when pride gets involved, it's never a good thing, because you can have abuse of power and you can miss what God is telling you to do. And Paul didn't allow the successes of ministry to go to his head. He deflected praise. When Paul and Barnabas, P and B, were thought by some people to be Hermes and Zeus, some Greek gods, because they saw a miracle that only God could do, Paul quickly got rid of that. Well, he nipped it in the bud. And he says, no, 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 don't. What are you doing trying to offer sacrifices to us? Don't do that. We're not God. Let me show you who the real God is. He turned it into a preachable moment, and boy, did he ever. He wasn't about to take that praise for himself, and good for him. And that gets us through the half of verse 1. Um, we should be done by supper, and we'll get through the rest of this verse today. Okay, let's at least finish verse 1, shall we? And then we're going to wrap up. Who was this guy named Sosthenes in the second half of verse 1? He was presenting this to the church in Corinth. I, Paul, the one called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, appointed by him, commissioned by him, sent out by him, and to Sosthenes, a brother in Christ. Who is this Sosthenes? Well, he was the chief ruler of the synagogue at Corinth. He was a guy who had real character of his own, strong, stalwart leadership character. He refused to, to take legal action against Paul as the Jews were trying to incite what basically could have turned into a riot. They were instigating the crowd, and they were whipping up sort of a mob mentality, and they were trying to force Sosthenes into doing something that Sosthenes was not ready to, to do yet, because Sosthenes had more character than that. He knew that he had to go by the rule of law and not just by the whim of people who were having knee-jerk emotional reactions. Man, that's hard. And it takes a lot of character to stand firm and to do the right thing, even though there's lots of pressure coming at you from different sides. Well, Sosthenes, because of his stand for the right thing, was taken by force and beaten in front of the Roman governor, Gallio. That's who Sosthenes was. Can you understand why Paul might have a soft spot in his heart for this guy named Sosthenes? Well, Paul, to give you a couple of uh, key concepts that we're going to see fleshed out, just so you'll know a little bit about his theological shape. He was teaching us something that was very different than what was being taught back in that culture. The Roman world would teach that character is an individual thing. You had to stand out, that you were a rock, an island, a lonely, strong person, and that you could pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and that if you kept fighting hard to do the right thing and to have a checklist of do's and don'ts, that somehow you could develop character. And Paul flips that right around, and he goes, nope. Character development is a team sport. You need each other, and you need differing gifts to help play against each other and with each other so that you can be more together than you can be individually. And we see that a lot because of his emphasis on spiritual gifts. He also teaches that this character change, this transformation, the character arc that we see in Christians is based on inward change through the Holy Spirit, not by following outward rules. That was very different. That was radical to their mindset back then. I think it's still pretty radical today. And he taught something that seemed almost counterintuitive or paradoxical. He would say that when you get more filling with the Spirit, when you get more of the Spirit in your life, 
you become more human. The more you die to self, you become more human. It was so contrary to their thinking. Why is that? Because the old nature was really not very human. It was contrary to God's plan for us, and therefore, we were probably inhuman. We become more human the more we become like Christ, because Christ is the perfect human. It was radical, so radical back then. And I'm here to tell you that when we start speaking these same kinds of concepts today, it feels like we're speaking right into a Corinthian culture. And so I want to pray for us that God somehow, even when we feel, as you can clearly tell, inadequate for the task and like our words fall short and we can't come up with the right words, that God is going to use us in a powerful way to demonstrate that we stand for justice. We stand for Christ. We stand for love. And we can do all that because of the spirit within us, even when we feel like we're not sure how to do it properly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a week, as Dr. Pike mentioned when we first started this time together. What a week. I pray that you'll be speaking to our spirits through your spirit. That all of us will be good listeners. That we'll listen longer and harder than we've ever listened before. And that when you finally whisper to us what we can do in response to what you're telling us, we will be so quick to respond that we will respond with Christ-like character, that people can tell that we are somehow unique because we have the Spirit exuding himself through our lives to other people. Give us so many opportunities to pour your love out to the people around us. May we be known by our love. And thank you that you give us opportunities that we pray for and might not even know how they're going to come about because you're the great orchestrator. And we want a symphony of love to be played out to the people around us that will erupt in praise to the God who makes it happen. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who transformed Saul into Paul and inspired him to write what we're studying. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.